Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from Baltimore. Uh, we are at the National Postal Forum, which is a partner of the United States Postal Service. And I was looking and doing some research about the United States Postal Service. And I was surprised to find that if this were a private company, last year it would have been the 39th biggest company in the 2016 uh, Fortune 500 uh, corporations, which is impressive. And uh, with us to give us a little bit of more perspective on both the company and the broader market for shipping and and frankly, making mail relevant in an era where people are hooked to their phones is Kristen Siever, Chief Information Officer and Executive Vice President of the United States Postal Service. She joins us uh, here now. So, you know, Kristen, one thing that we've been hearing a lot about is the importance to sort of transform uh, the way people think about mail, the way that they track it, the way that they observe it and experience it. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge in the year ahead as you sort of look out try to make it modern, but also cater to nostalgia and, you know, also uh, the Amazonification of our world. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think one of our greatest challenges is going to be to keep pace. We've done a lot of work, as you'll see at the National Postal Forum, uh, in building technologies and platforms to track mail, to provide value to mail. Uh, but our challenge is to keep that mail relevant, to work with our customers, to help them grow their businesses, and to work as every industry has to do right now at an incredible pace to keep up and leverage these technologies to the best extent. How difficult is it? I was just looking at uh, the U.S. Postal Service's uh income statement, recent income statement, uh, and there was a $474 million year-over-year decline in the second quarter, and it was in large part due to uh, having to pre-fund 75 years of retiree health benefits, and how much of that is a pressure on being able to adapt to the changing environment? Yeah, the Postal Service faces significant pressure uh, when it comes to our finances and, and how we're run, and we really have three things that we're trying to focus on. Uh, the first is for the Postal Service to adapt quickly and to manage its operation uh, to react to declining volumes, but also to compete where volumes are increasing. Right. So that's quite a challenge. Uh, our other two challenges are uh, legislative and regulatory, and uh, we have a, a positive bill that came out of committee for postal reform that's really important to us. What, what's, the, uh, what's the substance of it? The substance of the postal reform bill is basically uh, allows us to uh, address our retiree health benefit there you go. issue with integrating Medicare, allows us to use Postal Service demographics instead of federal government demographics, if you think about the Postal Service, we have workers all over the United States in um, varying income levels. It allows us to uh, take back some of the exigent uh, price increase, and it also gives us a little bit of uh, flexibility for some new products and services that we're excited about. Well, so since we all talk about Amazon so much, and Amazon is just decimating the entire retail sector, as a lot of people have been saying, um, do you find that 
the U.S. Postal Service is able to keep up from a technological point of view and being able to deliver all of the boxes? And can you give us a sense of how much the just sheer volume of packages has increased over uh, the past few years? Yeah, we've had double-digit increase in package volume year over year for the last three years. But the thing that's been great about the Postal Service is that we have the delivery muscle to flex it. We go to every house. We go to every business. And it's really been an opportunity for us to showcase our strength, what we've been doing for over 240 years. But aren't there a lot more competitors? Because people are looking and saying, wow, this is the future, right? This is the, uh, the reality is that you're going to be able to order something, pick something up, and then it's going to come to your home. And so there are going to be some probably uh, shippers and delivery uh, companies that are going to try to compete. So Absolutely. Um, so one of the advantages we have is we've already built out our network uh, and we leverage that network. The other thing is um, even with competition, which is fierce, but we still deliver more e-commerce packages than any other provider in the country. Uh, and we will continue to leverage our brand, our trusted presence in everybody's business and, and community uh, to compete and, and to win for that package delivery. We were talking earlier about drones. Are those on your radar? They have to, as the chief information officer, <laughs> absolutely, and I get that question a lot. Okay, so, so how do you foresee drones playing into the United States Postal Service's business plan in the near future? Well, I think for us what's important is we have many use cases for delivery, right? We deliver in urban areas, we deliver in rur rural areas, we deliver in the Grand Canyon. So maybe there's do. a there, do maybe do drop down packages into the uh, into the Colorado River. We go down and we've had delivery <laughs> on burrows into the Grand Canyon. No. So that might be a possible use case of drone delivery for the Postal Service, right? There are some places that are hard to get to, uh, and we definitely foresee. Um, uses like that, but we can also use it to survey our own infrastructure. There's many different use cases. So what we're doing is staying in touch with the technology, staying in touch with the regulations, uh, and really scrubbing our use cases to see where our best uh, fit's going to be. You know, we've talked about how uh, German uh, postal, the German Postal Service uh, in particular has looked at autonomous driving vehicles to help reduce costs and increase the uh, delivery predictability. Has that been on your radar at all? Absolutely. We, uh, we have some efforts with autonomous, uh, working with academic institutions uh, as far as what would be the use case, how would we use it in the Postal Service. Uh, for us, you know, one of the things is we have such a significantly large fleet. So over two hundred, over uh, two hundred and seventy thousand vehicles, so that have to be driven and maintained uh, throughout throughout the country to deliver the mail every day. And now we deliver seven days a week. So we definitely foresee that we'll have use cases for autonomous vehicles, whether it's in actual delivery or we're also a huge logistics provider. We have to get the mail from across the country. So what, how, is much, how much has the ratio between uh, letters and packages changed? I imagine that once upon a time there were more letters and fewer packages, and now it has reversed, right? It hasn't fully reversed. It hasn't, okay. Uh, no, letters are still the predominant product that we have, but basically um, as letters are declining, packages are increasing. Uh, so we haven't crossed that great divide of uh, where total letter volume is, is less than packages. But you know, the decline in letter volume is concerning. Um, and that's why we have to compete for the package business and, and continue to deliver for the American public. What's going to be the number one technological advancement in the next year for uh, USPS? I think the number one advancement that we'll be able to leverage is our advanced analytics platform uh, to continue to provide value to the mail, but also to find ways to enhance our own business uh, and to find those opportunities that might allow us to reduce cost, might allow us to uh, produce new products, 
Uh, we've put a lot of investment into that over the last three years, and now that's finally coming to fruition. Kind of what we talked about before, about being able to, uh, uh, with Preetha Amara talking about how people can look and scan and see what, what's in their uh, mailboxes without actually being there and possibly even use uh, some of the uh, advertisement flyers. Absolutely, and sort informed of engage. delivery. Yeah. Today, th this year at the National Postal Forum, we have two major um, platforms that we're leveraging, informed delivery and informed visibility, and they really go hand in hand. So informed delivery is exciting because every consumer has access to it and can sign up and, and you know, yeah, tomorrow, be looking at those images of their mail. Thank you so much for joining us. Kristen Siever, it was really a pleasure to speak with you. Kristen Siever is Chief Information Officer and Executive Vice President of the United States Postal Service here in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, where we are broadcasting live from the National Postal Forum. Right now, however, I want to bring in Jonathan Nicholson, senior reporter at Bloomberg BNA, to give us some perspective on what we've gleaned so far from President Trump's uh, hoped budget, anyway, uh, and how likely it is that he is going to get through some of what he wants. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Jonathan, uh, what have we gleaned so far about what President Trump would like to see in the budget? Well, he goes through a lot of, uh, one could argue, sort of fiscal gymnastics to try and uh, um, sort of square the circle of, uh, of uh, doing tax reform, increasing defense, um, but also trying to get to uh, something uh, close to balance uh, by the end of 10 years, which has been a long-term uh, Republican uh, budget goal for a long time. Uh, so in doing so, basically, uh, they rely on, uh, on some economic pro growth projections that people uh, have some questions about, and they rely right. on some, uh, some deep cuts in uh, both uh, non-defense discretionary and, and some uh, mandatory entitlement spending programs. So I'll just uh, go through some of the headlines that I've been looking at, some of the information people have said that it would hit, uh, you know, all of the welfare and sort of entitlement programs other than Medicaid, for example. Uh, it would strip away a lot more there. It would make it tougher to get some of the ca uh, tax breaks for lower income individuals. It would remove uh, money for some of the offices that have uh, been expanded under, pre under former President Obama in favor of bolstering defense, right? I mean, is that basically the gist? I mean, what, what are sort of the areas that you think are going to stick and have staying power uh, through all of the congressional negotiations that are inevitable? Well, it's, it's actually kind of tough to see exactly um, how much will stick and what specifically will stick. Um, congressional Republicans are actually, in many cases, being very publicly neutral uh, and, and privately, uh, um, not very accepting of this. Um, really, I'm surprised. <laughs> well, because uh, you know, it's one thing to say that you want to uh, balance the budget and, and so on. It's quite another when it actually comes to actually having to put the uh, the uh, you know where the rubber meets the road. Um, and so one of the things is basically we just had uh, the House Chairman of the Appropriations Committee, Mr. Freelinghausen, put out a very uh, neutral, uh, neither for it nor against it kind of statement just a couple of minutes ago. Or he said, yeah, our job as appropriators is to, uh, to exercise the power of the purse, which 
is not really that newsy because that is their job. Um, <laughs> right. So it's basically a non-statement. He doesn't really want to comment on it one way or another. Can we get a right. sense of, of, of history here uh, with what past presidents have done when they've released their budgets or their proposed budgets? How much support do they generally get in advance from either congressmen of their same party or reach across the aisle? I mean, usually is there legwork that's done ahead of time or is this always the opening salvo? It's it's certainly an opening salvo. I mean, you know, the running joke, uh, it's it's almost cliché to even joke about it now, is that no matter what the party mix is of who holds the who holds the uh, Congress and who holds the White House, that when the president sends up a budget, someone will always say, "quote It's dead on arrival," Um, and that is the case with this one. The interesting thing here is that this is the first year budget, but it's taken this long to send it up. Um, and it still is lacking the details of the tax reform proposal that they want to uh, get to agreement on with the House and Senate Republicans. Um, and yet it still has this, got this very uh, – the appropriators don't like the cuts to discretionary spending. Uh, the moderates uh, don't like uh, the cuts to some of the, uh, some of the uh, entitlements, some of the, so, some of the social net programs. Um, so it's kind of interesting that usually if you do have a budget that has some degree – of, uh, of, of momentum to it, it usually is a president's first-year budget. And in that sense, what we're seeing here today, particularly even with Trump even out of the, out of the country while this budget is being dropped, is, is, is not nearly, I think, historically what we usually see um, in terms of first-year budget reaction. You know, I, it's funny that you mentioned that he's uh, President Trump is out of the country because that was my first comment, too. Why is he doing it now while he's not here to kind of uh, do the rounds with it and give people an explanation of why he's so behind this particular plan, especially if people are coming out with pretty neutral uh, expressions of, you know, how they assess it? Do you, I mean, is that typical? You're kind of implying not so much. And if it's not typical, was this planned this way or did it just sort of happen this way? Well, he was. Uh, uh, they picked this budget release date maybe about two weeks ago or so. I think by then they probably already had. I would suspect at least they already had the dates locked in for the international trip that he that he's on now. Um, I do not recall the last time a president was out of the country when his budget dropped, but I also haven't checked, so I wouldn't necessarily read too much in that. But you're okay. right. Usually it is a day when the president says, you know, here's what we stand for fiscal, fiscal policy-wise. Um, and today that burden is being basically borne by Mick Mulvaney, who is, you know, is a, is a cabinet member, is an OMB person, but is not, you know, not the president. Um, so, so, so can you give me a sense, Jonathan, of what the next steps are, sort of how this will move and be uh, potentially implemented, if at all? Uh, there's sort of a two uh, two things to watch for. Uh, basically, the uh, House and Senate uh, budget committees will uh, take this under advisement. You know, take a look at it. They will do their own budget resolutions um, probably in June. Um, they have to do uh, a budget resolution if Republicans hope to for fiscal 18. If the Republicans hope to do tax reform with Republican-only votes as they plan, um, is so. So what you look look for in that is whether or not they set up some reconciliation instructions uh, for tax reform and for some of these spending cuts uh, that uh, that Trump is wanting. That's one measure of how much of this will get actually uh, potentially enacted into law. The other aspect is the appropriations process. Will the appropriators mark to the $1.065 trillion uh, of appropriated uh, dollars that uh, that are set up in this uh, this budget? 
Um, and that seems to be a little bit closer to, to being um, uh, to, to, to happening. I think there's still a question of how they do the defense-non-defense mix, which they probably will not do um, as much of a mix toward defense uh, as Trump has proposed. Um, Jonathan, I'm looking at a headline on the Bloomberg. Uh, Trump's $3.6 trillion budget cuts hit his own supporters hard. In other words, the people who are going to uh, be the worst benefited or the least benefited from his current proposal are some of the people who supported him the most. Can you explain how that is? Oh, well, there's a, there's a, a lot of um, political reporting about how uh, much of his support um, was in sort of um, hard scrabble, um, economically um, uh, tough areas, uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, so on. Uh, and in those areas, uh, many of those, uh, many, that's probably the one I'm going to put it, but a certain uh, proportion um, are on, say, Social Security disability, which is one of the things that is proposed uh, to, to be cut on this. Um, another is um, uh, SNAP, uh, what used to be called food stamps. Um, so this certainly looks at those, uh, at those areas, um, and, and, and to the extent that those are concentrated uh, among uh, rural uh, rural supporters of, of Trump, uh, it would indeed oh, be sort yeah. of biting, biting the hand. I want to bring in back uh, Jonathan Nicholson, senior reporter at Bloomberg BNA, to give us a little bit of perspective. Jonathan, what stood out to you as sort of the most important thing uh, that McMulvaney just said? Uh, there were two things that struck me. Um, one is, 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 is he's kind of picked the 3% growth rate as his hill to die on. Um, which I think is going to be a tough sell uh, when he appears before the budget committees uh, uh, tomorrow and the day after. Um, yeah. A lot of mainstream economists think that that's just not credible, um, and uh, and so that's the, the fact that he stuck to his guns on that seems that that's going to be an issue. The other thing was uh, he, he he changed his wording on um, uh, on Social Security to say Social Security retirement. Um, now in the past couple of days and the previews and so on, they've been talking about they haven't they don't touch Social Security. Um, but I think uh, when they talk, when they're doing the disability insurance, uh, which is part of the Social Security program and is included when you hear those dates about when Social Security goes bankrupt and so on, it's a separate trust fund, but they put the old age survivors uh, trust fund and the disability insurance trust fund together, call Social Security and say it goes bankrupt in XYZ year or so on. Right. Um, I think it's interesting that he sort of walked that back to say Social Security retirement um, as seemingly a tacit acknowledgement um, uh, of that criticism, uh, that they were trying to be evasive there. You know, I thought it was also interesting that the way that uh, the Trump administration is going to measure the success of programs and the compassion of programs is not how many uh, people they serve, but by how many people get off of some of the entitlement programs. Did that stand out to you, or uh, what does that actually mean to you? That's a longstanding um, uh, rhetorical point uh, that a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, anti-spending Republicans uh, have. Um, basically, you can't measure the success of programs by the amount of money spent. Um, now, there's usually a pass for this given for defense, um, because defense uh, has, uh, its budget has about doubled over the last 17 years or so. Um, but now, the other aspect of that is, is uh, he has a point in the sense that CBO does assume that uh, if inflation is 3%, then the, for a program to do the same thing next year is it needs at least a 3% uh, increase. So in that sense, uh, there are sort of inflation uh, expectations ratcheted into uh, the uh, the CBO uh, nonpartisan baseline. 
You know, I thought that it was also, uh, you know, I want to go back to the wall uh, comments because people have said that there really hasn't been uh, much money put aside to finance this program to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. People question perhaps President Trump doesn't really mean a physical wall, but something that's a little bit more right. of a mix between more surveillance and uh, and some physical uh, building. But but Mick Mulvaney said we are dead serious about the border wall, and this is one of his top three priorities. What does that right. What does that signify? And where what is, Where's the money going to come from? Uh, well, in the in the budget, they they do have 1.6 billion uh, for for the wall, uh, at least to sort of start get it started. Uh, I think uh, the significance of that is that when uh, when it comes time in September, everyone here on the Hill seems resigned to the idea already that we're looking at a continuing resolution come September 30th to keep the government open. And so that will mean that, again, there will need to be Democratic support uh, for doing so. And so that's where you set up this question whether we're going to have a, a shutdown showdown, whether Trump will follow through on what he said a couple of weeks ago about, you know, a good shutdown, uh, things like that. Um, and so in that debate, should that happen in September, as people seem to expect, um, this question of wall funding, which was sort of, sort of uh, worked through and sort of elited uh, or sort of, you know, kind of – danced around in the last omnibus, um, if that is, truly is one of the top three priorities uh, for the administration, then that could be a very big sticking point come September. Um, that would be my, right. that braces a flag there, it seems to me. Um, and just going back to what you were saying about the 3% growth rate, you were you flagged, uh, and rightly so, that a lot of economists say that that is not probable. In the near term, you have uh, people, including Harvard professor Larry Summers, coming out and saying that just does not seem uh, in the cards, given the fact that you do have an aging population and just generally slower growth around the world. Uh, do you expect there to be hearings where we have economists coming in and sort of throwing cold water on that 3% rate, or is this, is this it? I mean, is this going to be basically... Uh, uh, you either have to accept it or you aren't even going to debate on the same on the same playing field uh, with respect to this budget. I, I assume it'll be a little bit more of a he said, she said. I mean, I, I think uh, the Republicans control, you know, the, the both chambers so that they, they can you know, they can control what hearings uh, are called. Um, I'm sure if Democrats control one of the chambers, they would love to have a hearing on what are realistic uh, economic growth projections, uh, given the uh, the aging uh, and less productive workforce. Um, but that doesn't mean that the Democratic senators won't bring this up uh, during the uh, during uh, the hearings tomorrow at the House Budget Committee uh, or the hearing tomorrow uh, or the hearing Thursday uh, at the Senate Budget Committee. Um, this is uh, this has been something that people have been sort of zeroing in on for a couple of days now um, in terms of uh, in terms of the possible uh, bones of contention with this budget, and it is right. such a such a, uh, you know, there are some people, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, bipartisan group the other week, said they thought, you know, maybe you can get up to 2, 2.1, 2.2 if you did some reform. But there would be, I think the phrase was, quote, pretty heroic to get to 3% from the current 1.8, 1.9 long-term trend growth. Jonathan Nicholson, thank you so much for joining us and uh, breaking down what we've just listened to. Jonathan Nicholson is a senior reporter at Bloomberg
We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. Well, it is my honor to bring in Chris Hewlett, who is manager of U.S. Drone Powered Solutions uh, for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is based in uh, Washington, D.C., also a former Navy pilot for 21 years. And he joins us now to talk about a very hot topic when it comes to all things delivery, which is drones and the sort of dream that a lot of people have that one day we will look up in the skies and we will just see an army of drones dropping packages at our footsteps and delivering everything on demand. So, uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to get your take first uh, as we talk about this transition or adaptation of mail in a digital era. How much do drones really play into that at this point? Right. Thanks, Lisa, for having me here today. And it, it's an interesting conversation because right now the, the drone addressable drone market, which we talked about uh, by 2020, $127 billion for drone applications. And what part of that is the delivery piece? And you take a look at last mile deliveries, which a lot of people are doing experimentation with. And really, it gets down to an addressable market. So well, what's before the addressable you, before market? You, before you go on to uh, drone application, can you give us a sense of what that means? Okay, so <laughs> drone application. Um, it's famously quoted. Um, there are companies out there that state that uh, their package deliveries, 86% uh, of them weigh less than five pounds. So less than five pounds is easily addressable with a drone. Um, and then there's other companies that uh, are large retail chains that uh, speak about the statistic that 70% of Americans alone uh, live within five miles of a large retail outlet. So now you're talking about an addressable market, right? So okay, an application. Okay. So a five-pound uh, package being delivered from a large retail chain to a home within five miles. That's an addressable market. Um, but where those applications could be implemented really comes down to uh, an implementation strategy. Uh, and I think what we have to do in this country specifically is address three key issues. Uh, safety first. Obviously, there has to be you safety. Wanna, you don't want drones going in and take people's Correct. heads off. Okay, go uh, on. If, uh, if it's not a safe application, then obviously there's going to be some federal issues with that and people will take... Some social issues yeah, as well. Right, okay, so issues. safety first. Safety first. Uh, the second thing has to be consumer confidence. Right, because not not an uncommon now. Think about the way things used to be back in the day when uh, you could open up a catalog and you could order something. That uh, that risk uh, was all on the uh, con the the delivery mechanism because it was all cash on delivery, right? So you order something out of a catalog on the phone, and it showed up, and you paid for it on the spot. And if you didn't have the cash to pay for it, it was brought back home. That's not the case now. So all of the um, risk is on the consumer now to pay for something online and have it delivered to your house. So that has to be an addressable issue because right. if we can't give the consumer confidence that the package in question that costs $50, $100, $1,000 is going to arrive without any kind of damage or on time, 
Well, but, you know, I've got to be honest. I'm actually surprised that we don't see any drones delivering anything. I mean, honestly, there's, there, right. and not only do we not see any drones, but there's been such controversy over testing. There's, you know, even having, you know, potential uh, test runs. So, you know, how realistic is it that this will play any kind of meaningful part in the delivery of packages sure. anytime in the near future? Sure. The great news is, is that um, there are federal agencies that are working on what's called the Unmanned Aerial System Transportation Management System, UTM. Uh, and that's going through testing phases right now. And the, the idea behind UTM is to provide oversight from air traffic control perspective on where commercial applications are being utilized of drones. I think the, fa the fastest way forward for delivery mechanisms is actually in a rural area where it's less congested. Um, ironically, uh, this mirrors kind of what we're seeing on a global perspective from um, uh, drone delivery mechanisms in third world countries, which are finding the fastest proliferation of drone deliveries because of uh, the need to get um, uh, medicine, food, water, things to which areas. Countries? Which countries so, are the most advanced in this? So Tanzania, um, it would be an example of utilization of drone strategies to get um, needed medicine to remote areas in a faster fashion. Uh, and it's because there's no federal restrictions. So who's running those uh, operations? Well, those are all being done in partnership with various different governments and foreign entities that are working on drone uh, implementation strategies. Okay. And you also talk about $127 billion uh, of business that could be uh, involving drones in some level by 2020. And I have to wonder, that can't all be shipping uh, no. and packages. Gosh, no. what, what are sort of the majority? Uh, Infrastructure monitoring. Okay. So, um, telecommunications and uh, power distribution networks that need constant operations and maintenance have a heavy overhead with doing traditional rotor wing inspections. Uh, and there's a significant amount of danger associated with climbing up uh, a cell tower uh, to do an inspection. Uh, and if you think about the thousands of assets that exist within uh, just one small entity of a country, all of them need to be inspected on a regular basis for um, vegetation encroachment, um, birds nesting. These are all things that uh, cause your broadband to go down on your system. That, uh, you know, okay. yeah, yeah, right? And well, so as a consumer, you <laughs> right. want that to be taken care of. So the companies have to do operations and maintenance, uh, gain a tremendous boost in return on investment for using drone strategies. Chris, real quick, what companies stand to benefit the most as drones are uh, adopted in a more accelerating manner? I think uh, the power distribution uh, oil and gas uh, have the biggest benefit because you can use drones in a long-haul environment where you're taking a look at distribution networks for areas like uh, that have rolling blackouts that you could reduce blackouts. Uh, you're going to get the biggest bang for the buck as far as customer satisfaction at that point. Chris Hewlett, thank you so much for joining us here at the National Postal Forum in Maryland. Thanks, uh, Chris Hewlett is manager of U.S. Drone-Powered Solutions at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Washington, D.C. Also, he was a 21-year veteran of the Navy, uh, flying around, getting a lot of experience, so this does not mystify him, unlike some of the rest of us.
We are here in Baltimore at the National Postal Forum, which is a partner of the United States Postal Service. And we're talking about how to transform the concept of mail, physical, tangible, on the ground mail, in an era that's increasingly focused on your smartphone and on your tablet. Uh, and who better to do that for us, to understand kind of this connection and this evolution, uh, is Preetha Mera. She's Vice President of Mail Entry and Payment Technology at USPS, and she joins us here now in Baltimore at the conference. Thank you so much for joining us, Pritha. So what is sort of the forefront right now, the way that the United States Postal Service is trying to make it more sort of amenable to the digital era? What are the uh, frontiers, if you will? Well, imagine if you could carry your collection box with you everywhere you go, your mailbox. That's what we're doing. We're putting your mailbox into your phone, into your email, so that you can actually sign up and for those that haven't, I'm going to encourage you to sign up to our informed delivery platform. It's fantastic. So all you see picture images of every mail piece that's coming to your mailbox. Boy, are we bringing that mail piece alive. Okay, hold on one second. So this means that you can see the actual uh, items of mail that would be in your mailbox. Can you digitally open them? I mean, is it something where you basically are getting all of your mail digitally? Or you just can sort of take inventory of what you have and take stock? And, and well, there? there's a lot going on with that. So you can see the picture of the, uh, of the mail piece. And then advertisers can, and, uh, can attach a ride-along coupon or an image. They can attach a URL so that, you know, when you see this image, you can click through and you could go into an entire, entirely new experience. So it's essentially bringing mail alive. It's got a huge personality. With every mail piece, you can click and you can be rendered into a whole new experience. So I'm, I'm trying to think, because Paul Sweeney uh, of Bloomberg Intelligence was on earlier and he was talking about how uh, an increasing number of direct mailers are trying to use online information to then better target people uh, with physical pieces of mail. And yet this seems to be a way that people could potentially bypass the physical sort of direct mailings and sort of attach coupons and other things. I'm just confused as sort of what, how, how to be the most effective through this means. Absolutely not. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, you got it all wrong. So let me tell oh, you. Great. <laughs> so set me straight. No, what it is, is, is what we're doing is we're creating multiple impressions. So think about it. We've got a pretty, we've got a boatload of social media clutter today, right? And so mail stands out. So what this does is you get this mail piece, you keep the, you keep the mail piece with you. You're, you then perhaps, you've got an augmented reality going on on that mail piece. You can then, you know, shine your phone on it and you can be rendered another experience. With informed delivery, you're getting an image of your mail piece so you know, hey, there's something really important in my mailbox, I gotta go get it. Um, you can also then click into that image and think about the world of advertisers and they can link that physical catalog with multiple experiences. So you're gonna have multiple expressions, impressions, expressions and multiple experiences. So how, uh, how soon is this being rolled out or is it already happening? Oh, it's, it's all rolled out. And if you haven't signed up, you're missing the boat there. So I'm going to tell <laughs> you, missing you, the boat, yes, you are, you are, you're, <laughs> all right, then. you can sign up now. Advertisers can start using it. And we've got some huge success stories. Let me tell you about some open rates. Okay. Our email open rates are over 70%. 
we're getting response rates in the high seven, eight, nine percent. Where's the biggest uh, adoption right now? It's retailers. It's it's it's. No, I mean like locations in the U.S. I mean, is it very specific geographically where people are sort of? More well, when uh, when we rolled it out, we mm -hmm. started in the top metro areas, so okay. that of course, and so you know, and we are getting uh, consumers are signing up at an alarming rate. We have over two million uh, registered subscribers, so those eyeballs are increasing every day. You know, we talk a lot about how in the Amazon era, people are shipping a lot more uh, in order just to sort of order things online, bring it to their doorstep. But what about personal letters? Because I feel like emails kind of have overwhelmed that. Have you found that there is something special? You're saying that there is something different or, you know, distinctive about getting a physical piece of mail. Uh, you know, have you seen sort of the drop in personal letters kind of stabilize and people going back to that at all or... I think we are seeing that millennials, believe it or not, are, are loving mail. So people are going back because they realize the power of that, that mail piece. Because now that you've got all these different communications, mail is just a different experience. You go home, you access it when you want it. You're not reading it amongst 70,000 other emails or Facebook or this or that that you have to go through you're actually interacting with it at your own pace. So you have a different relationship, you have a karma relationship, you have a more sustaining relationship with that mail piece than you do with all the social media. And I think people are realizing the power of that, that relationship. Thank you so much for joining us. Sounds like an exciting time and uh, for being here in Baltimore. Preetha Mera, she is the Vice President of Mail Entry and Payment Technology for the United States Postal Service, uh, talking about uh, different payment systems. That, well, she didn't get quite into that, but she was talking about the digitization of uh, what your mailbox looks like and how you can check what's there uh, and some possible opportunities for marketers as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.